One of the worst things anyone can ever say to a boy or male is to act like a man without first teaching them how to be one. With a third of the children today growing up in fatherless homes and another third with fathers in the home but unavailable and detached from their kids, manhood is being redefined by the media, social media, music, the entertainment industry, and pop culture. Males are struggling for their identity. This is not the way God intended, but he is permitting it. I believe it's because he's calling on a generation of men who will step up, man up, so to speak, to accept responsibility for their families, reject passivity, lead their family spiritually, and like Abraham, leave a legacy of faith for generations to come. But where do we start? What do we do? Well, our guest today, who's a New York Times bestselling author, a successful leader in the home, and trains leaders all over the world, will give us some simple strategies on becoming the men, husbands, and fathers God called and created us to be. It's time for Real Men Connect. Welcome to Real Men Connect. Are you ready to be the extraordinary man, husband, father, and leader God called and created you to be? Then get ready to receive wisdom and guidance from some of the country's most respected men of faith as you learn everything you need to know to go from good man to great man God's way. No judgment, no shame. Just real men with real challenges seeking real change. All for God's glory. Hello, mighty men of God, and welcome to the Real Men Connect podcast, where we help good men become great men God's way. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Martin, and every week we interview some of the nation's most respected and accomplished men of faith to find out what it really takes to become the kind of husband, father, and spiritual leader God called and created us to be. Each interview session is packed with practical, proven biblical principles you can immediately apply in your relationships, on your job, and in your community. Today, we have with us one of my heroes, Stephen Mansfield. Now, Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author who has written more than 18 books, including the groundbreaking book, The Faith of George W. Bush. He's a popular speaker and advisor to leaders all around the world. And he's also an activist for a number of frontline social issues. And he appears regularly on Fox and CNN News Networks. Stephen is also the proud father of two children. And based on my research, he's a man who is madly in love with his wife, Beverly, (laughs) who's a successful songwriter and producer. Now, I got to tell you guys, I first heard about Stephen from my spiritual father and mentor who insisted that I read his book, The Mansfield Book of Manly Men, which has inspired men's events all over the world. He says that the purpose of his book is to identify what a genuine or real man does and then call men to do that. Now, you can't get any simpler than that. When we launched the Real Men Connect podcast, I had the privilege of interviewing uh, mutual friends of ours, um, Pastor Jim Brown, who's on episode 13, by the way, which is one of our most popular shows. So make sure you listen to that one. And Pastor Jim told me that I had to invite Stephen Mansfield on this show. Now, and as busy and in demand as Stephen is, he said any friend of Jim's is a friend of his. And he's and he immediately agreed to be on the show. So I truly believe God has his hand on this and orchestrated Stephen appearing on our show today. And I asked Stephen to come on the show to talk to us about what a real man does, but also what we can do as Christian fathers to raise our boys to become real men. So with that being said, Stephen, welcome to the show, man. I am so happy and excited for you to be on the show with us today at Real Men Connect. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be with you, man. Good, good, to, good, good to dive into some of these important truths. And I can't wait to introduce our audience to you. If they haven't read your book already, I told you even off the air that I've read your book three times, man. Three times. Oh, oh, oh that's wonderful. And wonderful. it's on thank our you. list of books of that we must read as men. Now, I know you're strapped for time, and I thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show with us. But I always start by asking our guests their favorite Bible verse. And I want to know, what's your favorite Bible verse? And tell us the reason why. Well, my favorite is Genesis 50, 20, 
and it's you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And what it, what ba- basically that's Joseph talking to his brothers and telling them, look, you wronged me and you did horrible things. You even tried to have me killed. But you know what? God intended it for good. And now great good is being done. And I think when we have that perspective on the, the pains that we have suffered, the betrayals we have suffered, the wounds we've endured from other people, and understand that God can intend it for good for the saving of many, I think it causes us to turn to him let him heal us and let him use us even more powerfully. So that's that's my favorite verse, especially when it comes to men. See, I tell you, Stevie, I know you're a man after my own heart, man, because I love that that Bible verse. Not that it's my favorite Bible verse, but um, I was asked, and if on our first podcast, I put it on our first podcast, I was asked when I was being introduced one day, they say, um, Joe, um, if you we had to put a title on a book cover for you <laughs> that describes and encompasses your life, what would you want our title to read? And I told them, God meant it for good. Mm-hmm. God meant it for good. So, uh, you know, my namesake is Joseph. And uh, so I believe that I've had the kind of life that Joseph had. That what God, what the devil meant for bad and evil, God meant it for good. So I'm glad that's you're true. Here. That's true. That's your favorite. Now, Stephen, uh, first, I want before we get into your book and um, the your famous manly maxims, I want to find out what do you think it means to be a man in today's society? How do we see it in today's society? Well, I think a man in today's society has to cut against push against the trends, the cultures, the way the culture tries to define him. And he's got to be authentic in his relationship with God, authentic in his own soul, and authentic with other men, and live out a noble and valuable masculine code. The society is going to shape men to be all about the externals. It's going to shape men to be dogs, um, be irresponsible. We see that. We see the father wound and a whole generation arising. And so, a man today takes on his responsibilities, teams with other men, and lives out a noble code that I believe comes from God um, and certainly brings the, the boys, the young men, up in that culture they build around them. And so those are the pillars, I think, of what it means to be a, a righteous man today. And, and Stephen, I, I agree with you as well. But And I run into a lot of men who – I've never met a man who didn't want to be a successful husband, a great father, uh, a strong leader. But obviously, a lot of men attempt to do it, but we tend to struggle with it. Why do you believe, personally, based on your research and the um, experiences you've had meeting men all over the world, what, why do you think most males fail as men? I'd have to say the main reason most males fail as men is that they are not committed, number one, to a, a, a biblical, a godly, a true vision of what true manhood is. And then the second thing is they have not allowed other men to gather around them to help them become that. I do not believe that a man can be a good man, a righteous man, a great man alone. I don't think we even see ourselves clearly. You know, I use the illustration all the time of, of all of us have probably gone to a party or an event and somebody snapped a picture and later we see, see that picture and it's a picture of us and we barely even recognize ourselves. You know, they got us at an angle we don't know or got us at a clumsy moment. Well, if we can't even see ourselves accurately physically, how can we know what's going on truly in our lives? We need other people's eyes on us. We need other perspectives on us. And so I think the two things that most men miss, they do not live a godly, true, biblical code of what it means to be a man. And they do not have other men who love them, but are not afraid of them around them, helping them to fulfill that and correcting them as they need it. That's good stuff. I'm glad you said that too, because that, that reinforces a lot of things that I believe as well. Now, I, I mentioned I've read your book several times, three times, and I've tried to watch and listen to every interview you've given concerning your book. And you've always discussed the four manly maxims, which you call the four pillars of manhood. 
Um, why don't you just start by telling us what those four are and quickly summarize each of those for us? Sure. Happy to do it. Well, I wanted to give men, especially younger men in this generation, an on-ramp to noble manhood. And so even though the book is, is primarily drawing principles of manhood out of the lives of great leaders through history, I start with four maxims, and they're this. First of all, manly men do manly things. Now, that may sound real simple and repetitive, but the fact is that so much of uh, men's culture, men's movement, men's meetings has to do with what men are feeling, has to do with their wounds, has to do with their inner life. And I, I certainly think all that's important, don't misunderstand, but I am committed to the idea that the healing is in the doing, that men need to be focused on doing the right things first, and then God, their own souls, other people all pull in uh, and begin to help them uh, achieve the wholeness internally they need. I'm not trying to create a legalism, mm. but I do believe the doing comes first. Second of all, uh, manly men tend their fields. Now, I believe out of the language of Paul, Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm not going to boast beyond the field assigned to me. And he used the Greek word metron, a measured field. And I think that for every you know, season of a man's life, he's got a field assigned to him. He's got, a, he's got certain duties, responsibilities, obligations, things that are meant to be in his field that he's meant to be tending. And a righteous man tends it well. An irresponsible man neglects his responsibilities, doesn't take care of what God's assigned to him, and therefore he doesn't increase. But Luke 16 tells us that if we'll take care of earthly goods and uh, we're other people's money and, and, and uh, earthly riches, that we will have spiritual riches. And I think that's the key to understanding manhood and increasing as a man is we take care of the things that are assigned to us and God gives us increase. The second, the third principle is uh, that manly men build manly men. I'm all for books. I'm all for conferences. I'm all for you know videos. But the fact is you cannot build uh, manly, masculine greatness in your own life. You've got to have a band of brothers. You've got to have men around you who love you, see you for who you are, speak to you courageously, correct you as you need it, and you're doing the same for them. I just believe that men have got to have a team. That's true almost in every other endeavor of life, but it certainly is true when it comes to pursuing noble manhood. And then finally, manly men live to the glory of God. I cannot be the man I'm called to be without God involved in my life, without me living to please him. And by the way, living to please him, whether I please others or not. As I often say in the conferences that I do, you know, there are times that I have done exactly the right thing I'm meant to do as a man. And on a Saturday morning, nobody in my house is happy with me. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. I've corrected the one child. I've disciplined the other child. I've had a tough conversation with the wife, you know, but I'm still doing the things I'm meant to do. I'm not trying to paint myself as a martyr, but I am saying I, I have got to live for his glory. And then a second within that category is I need his resources. I, I don't have the insight I need into my wife, the understanding of my kids, the sense of direction about how to navigate this culture without the help of God and the guidance of his Holy Spirit. So those are the four maxims I start with. And then I develop in the book a whole lot of other uh, pillars and principles of godly manhood out of the lives of great leaders throughout history. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And I was going to bring that up as well. But, but let me quickly review for those out there listening what you said. You said, one, Manly men do manly things. And I and the emphasis on do. <laughs> Two, manly men tend their fields. I love that. They take responsibility for what they've been given. Manly men build manly men. You know, I love what you said. You, you know, you a good man can't become a great man without <laughs> the help of godly men. And manly men, number four, live to the glory of God. 
Love it. Love it. And your yeah, the principles, your whole book is based on those principles. And that's what I'm going to transition to next is because you talk about true men, great men of history, and you reveal their lives to us. Men like Winston Churchill, Booker T. Washington, Abraham Lincoln, George Patton and Theodore Roosevelt and numerous others. But now, Stephen, it's, we're talking, man. We're men. We're, we're boys. We, let's talk. Let's be honest. Most men won't ever take the time to read about those great men. And that's shame on them because we we don't read as much as we probably should, um, let alone study the men like you have. Um, I, I've read about Winston Churchill, but I have not even scratched the surface studying him the way you have. But I wanted to bring you to the show. Like our friend, Pastor Jim Brown, I consider you guys great men. So I want the men who are listening, if they never get a chance to study those great men in history, I want them to learn from you and about you. Like, for instance, you said in your book that the night you became a man, you were 41 years old. And I told you I didn't become a man till I was 33, had that road to Damascus experience. Now, and even though you were 41 years old, you said you were a Christian for 23 years. You were married for 17 and had been a father for 13 years. Could you explain to us what happened at the age of 41 that changed your life? Well, for a variety of reasons I don't really need to go into, I was going into Iraq to do relief and then help the Kurds. And uh, we had usually gone in uh, through Turkey. The Turks closed that road. So uh, we ended up going into Damascus and going across the Syrian desert. Well, that sounds crazy now, given all that's going on in Syria. But at that time, uh, that's what we did. Well, I got stuck in Damascus. My papers weren't right or they didn't had didn't have the visas they needed. I was there for a couple of weeks. I had a friend at that time in the Syrian parliament and he got he got to feeling sad for me and he said, "Look, let me throw a party for you." So he gathered about 15-20 of his buddies. We went onto the roof of a lovely Damascus hotel and we had a little party. Well, I couldn't really talk to them. They couldn't really talk to me. We didn't speak the same language. It was sweet, but it was kind of stilted. And finally, one of the men turned to me and said, uh, "Do you have a son?" And I said, I do. He said, what is his name? And I said, Jonathan. He said, then you have a new name. And I said, what? What, what, what do you mean? He said, your name is Abu John. Well, I finally figured out after talking to some other people there who spoke English that in Arab culture, being a father is such an honor for a man that they actually create an honorary name for him that's a comprised of Abu, which means father of, mm -hmm. and a shortened version of the son's name. So my name became Abu John, since my name's, my son's name is Jonathan. When that was announced, that roof erupted into celebration. They danced, they ordered food, they fired guns in the air, they did all the stuff that they do. And I got to tell you, it was really something. And and we we celebrated for four or five hours. Now, I need to tell you just behind the scenes here, my son was already 13 years old. They just didn't know it. But they were celebrating like, like you know. <laughs> you just born. <laughs> like he was born yesterday. That was fine with me. When I got up the next morning, something was different in my soul. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, it was profound. And I, I thought about it a long time. And finally, I realized by that time, I was... I had graduated from college. I had played football. I'd grown up in the military. I had a wife. I had two kids. I think I finished a doctorate by then. Um, I mean, I had had a good full life, but this was the first time anyone had ever welcomed me to a stage of manhood. It was the first time I had ever been celebrated as a man and welcomed to a stage of manhood. It was unbelievable. And so what happened was that I came back to the States and I really began to realize, man, we, we are not, we, we are not affirming men at the various stages of their lives. Uh, we are not, uh, there's, there's something missing, uh, even in the churches when it comes to manhood. And I began to study the scriptures differently, began to uh, prepare myself better, uh, began to look at my own life and the life of my friends. And I got to tell you, a profound change came out of that. Everything you see in this book uh, came out of 
uh, the, the, my, my recognition that I had been changed by men I couldn't even hardly talk to who had celebrated and affirmed me um, in, in manhood. And, a, and, a, and later on, I heard a proverb, I'll, I'll shorten this now, but later on, I heard a proverb that comes from the African villages. And it is, if we do not initiate the boys, they will burn the village down. And I think that's true. And I think we see that going on all over the world with Absolutely. unaffirmed men. Mm-hmm. And certainly it was true in my life, even though I was a you know fairly accomplished guy and a senior pastor of a big church and everything else by that time. So uh, that's that's the big turning point in my life. Wow. And see, now you mentioned, so at 41, this happens. Tell, tell us about your father, because you they're celebrating you as a father in this culture that you have a son. But tell us about your dad and how you grew up and what your childhood was like. Well, my father was a very um, decorated military man, mm-hmm. and he was a fine man, but he was not a great father. Um, he he was you know he wasn't abusive and he wasn't uh, violent. Just absent, you know. If he came home, he sat in front of the TV, and he loved his sports. He watched baseball all day or football all day. He never engaged us at any personal, meaningful level. He never he didn't know what to do with his son. Didn't know how to father him. Didn't know didn't know how to correct me. Corrections were very harsh. He wanted me to be involved in sports. He wanted me to do well in school, but he never spoke to me about being a man or or my soul or what a man does or or dealing with my desires, my lusts, anything like that. So it was. Um, it was a tense and difficult relationship. I love him. We were later, we were later fairly close in life, but it was after he mellowed and uh, you know I had become a believer and so on. But uh, my life—if you've seen the movie *The Great Santini* with Robert Duvall—that's mm-hmm. very much uh, very much what my upbringing was like. And it was a it was a it was a, a, a wonderful upbringing in some ways because you know we lived around the world. My father was a high-ranking officer, and we had the privilege of serving and being involved in American military communities, but. The fathering side of it was uh, horrible, and in fact, uh, I was overmothered, and that always produces a little bit of deformity in a man's soul. Okay, now there's men out there, and I'm including myself as present company, who, when you know, your father was just he was there in the home, but he was disengaged from the home. But there's a lot of men out there who dads weren't there at all; they weren't even present. And a lot of times, you and I'm sure you've heard this from other men before. They make the comment that, "Well, my dad wasn't there, but I didn't need him." That I'm going to make it without him. I told you I said that, you know, and wanted to show and 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 prove that I can make it without my dad being there. So there's a lot of men who think they have a false insecurity. Say, well, I, you know, I'm successful. Look, Stephen made it. His dad wasn't that close to him, and he was in the home. But look how successful he became. I want to know what kind of impact do you think, honestly, that your relationship with your dad and how he was. What kind of impact did that have on you? Well, I think it made me a hard driver. I think it made me a man who wanted to accomplish a great deal, and that was good. Um, but I, it didn't teach me how to be a man. It didn't teach me how to uh, manage my drives, my desires, my even my physical strength. Um, it didn't give me a vision for noble manhood. So um, there were a lot of good things. He was a man who sacrificed himself for a higher cause. He was a war hero. Uh, he was a man who lived out a, a code and and um, and was kind and generous to his family, um, but but never one single lesson about how to be a man. Mm-hmm. About you know how how to I mean other than you know kind of don't touch that kind of instruction about women. There was never any you know any any teaching about that or the stages you go through or what how you start to flip out when you're an adolescent or anything like that. He just did not know how to communicate to his son, and in that he's not unlike a lot of uh, uh, fathers of certainly of my generation. Um, they loved their family. They didn't do their family any direct harm, but they just didn't know how to sort of shepherd their, their son's souls or, or their daughters for that matter. And so that was a, that was a serious factor in my life. 
Okay. Um, it, cause that, you know, I, I hear so many men who say that, Joe, I don't, I don't need a dad anymore. And I, I mean, I tell them that they still need to develop a relationship with other men, but it does cause a surprise, even if it's the heart of the heart of not knowing how to respond to our wives or whatever, but there still is a cause. That's why I wanted you to, to touch on that. But what were some of the obstacles, Stephen, that you had to overcome to become a great man as a husband and a father, if you don't mind sharing that with us? No, I don't mind at all. Um, I think the the things that most had to be added to my life later on um, was an awareness of the man as servant, the man uh, laying down his life, uh, the man uh, paying attention to children, to wife, understanding their the unique contours of their souls. Uh, you know, Scripture tells us, God tells us in Scripture, speaking to men, He says, "Look, dwell with your wives according to knowledge." It means you've got to pay attention to how they're wired, what they're thinking, their unique makeup. Um, not just in broad categories, you know, of of like personality inventory tests and so on, but the unique way they're made. And so, all, all of that was new to me. Um, just the fact that the man was meant to to lead by serving, lay down his life, um, provide for the family, um, all of those things. All of those things were lessons that I had to learn later in life. In fact, I'll tell you even some of the practical disciplines of, of manhood, like changing oil and shaving, I had to learn from other guys. Uh, my, my dad, bless his heart, just did not, you know, he was not the kind of guy who said, okay, come in here, you know, when I'm 13 years old, I'm going to teach you how to, how to shave. Um, it just wasn't that way. So I don't fault him. I don't criticize him. Um, there were just huge gaps left. But as we discussed at the beginning of the interview, you know, with that, with that quote in Genesis 50, 20, um, I, I really do believe that God allowed that to happen. So I would have to kind of journey back to wholeness or journey to knowledge of those in those areas. And then I'd have uh, the knowledge that I have to teach other men about them. Right. Right. Um, Stephen, I want to know how the, you mentioned the four manly maxims, but I want to know how they apply to your life. And we're going to look at each one and you can give us examples or any type of specific that men could glean from and say, wow, I need to start doing some of those things. I know it can't be all inclusive of everything, but as many things that you do that we could um, emulate possibly in our homes, in our marriages, when it comes to being a manly man, a godly man, specifically, let's start with the first one, specifically when it comes to doing manly things as a husband, father, and spiritual leader, what were some of the things that you did or did? Well, there are all sorts of, of, of uh, gifts that a man's been given and powers that he has that he has to learn how to, um, how to manage. For, for example, the power of a man's words. You know, in a lot of homes and with a lot of men, their words just fly around like, you know, just dangerous weapons flying through the air hurting anybody anywhere. But uh, a true man, a good man, a noble man understands the power of his words. He understands the power of his words to ignite things in his children's souls, to unlock their destiny, to affirm who they are. Uh, he understands the power of words to, to, to build up good and godly things in his, in his wife, romantic things, of course. Um, so the power of words would be, would be one. Um, prayer would be another. Obviously, uh, any, any man who's going to be godly and righteous has got to pray. Um, uh, protection. taking. I, I th but I think it, it, it all starts to bleed over to that second category that I know you're heading towards, which is taking responsibility. Right. Um, who, who takes responsibility? Who owns uh, getting the things done? Who um, make, I mean, You don't have to do everything. You don't want me fixing your car. But I do want to take responsibility for the fact that it does get fixed. Um, and so, so this, this sort of looking at the field you're assigned and taking responsibility for everything in it, whatever that duty is. But, but, but I think at a most, the most fundamental level, it's prayer, it's examining, it's using the power of your words, it's using your gifts uh, to, to, to strengthen and encourage everyone else. And then I, I would also say 
uh, to protect and defend your, your, your family, your wife, uh, your kids, the people who are in your household, they ought to feel like the most uh, protected and cared for people, um, uh, you know, anywhere around you, because that's, that's part of what a man does. He protects, he defends, he stands guard. Great. That, that's awesome. Now you mentioned, you kind of alluded to it just now about tending the field, that accepting responsibility. So we, and I think we kind of get that, but I got to have you share the story uh, from your book. And when you learned the lesson about the importance of tending the field, when you were a football player, I hope you, do you remember that story you wrote about in the book? I, I love that story. Could you, oh, could you mind sharing that with us? I don't mind a bit. I don't mind a bit. I was, um, I had moved from Europe uh, to a Des Moines high school and I played football okay, but I've mainly been playing other sports in Europe. And when I when I got to this Des Moines high school, they had me play defensive end. Well, I was big and I was strong and I did it fairly well, but I wasn't doing it well enough. And uh, the, the problem was I didn't really understand my territory. I didn't understand the the side of the line that I was meant to meant to defend. So I had a former NFL player, high school coach, and he got furious with me and he said, "Listen, you meet me a Monday morning uh, on the practice field six o'clock." And I thought, "What in the world are we going to do six o'clock Monday morning?" And I thought he's probably just going to work me to death. So he met me out there at, with a pair of scissors, and they weren't they weren't adult scissors; they were little kitty scissors <laughs> with the little rubber, you know, little finger holds and all that. And he said, listen, you idiot, you, you do not understand that your, your side of the line is your field. Nobody comes through there. Nobody uh, invades that space. Until you take ownership of that part of your field, uh, you're, you're never going to be a good player. So I want you every morning to come out here, and I want you to tend this grass. I want you to mow this grass. I want you to cut it. I want you to know this field, and I want you to start getting protective about it. So no joke, at 6 o'clock in the morning, I would get up and go down to the field, and he would meet me and hand me those scissors, and I would be on my hands and knees in the cold cutting the grass with scissors. Oh, boy. And as I tell people when I speak at our conferences, you know, I think I flipped out a little bit because I, I started to think of them as friends. I thought started to think of the grass as stuff I cared about. I gave them names. And when the practice <laughs> came at the end of the day, I, I would think to myself, don't, don't, I'd be thinking about a guy sweeping my way. And I would think, don't run over Herman. Don't run over George. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think I just lost my mind. But the fact is when I began to understand my territory, my field, uh, the field assigned to me to defend, that's when I began to play better, better at defensive end, because that's all about that. They'd been talking to me about, stringing out plays and containing and all that. I didn't understand that. But when they said, look, here is the field assigned to you. Defend it. Nobody comes through here. And if they've got the ball, they get stopped immediately. And that's, that's, it changed everything. So it's a, it's a silly illustration, but it's exactly the way most men are. We've got to know our field, own it, defend it, protect it, and be very, very intimate with it. I think that's a perfect illustration. And for those who are who are sports enthusiasts and football players and who ever play football, they understand about defending and protecting your territory. I've I got the the armor. What's the Under Armour slogan they first came yeah. out with is, is um, we must protect this house. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so I love that. I love that story. Now, you made a statement in your book that a man is not fully a man until he's a man among men who respect what it means to be a man. Could you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, I, I think that the, the best of manhood in any man, the best he can be, comes about when he has other men he's connected to, accountable to, um, who, who are able to, who are allowed to speak into his life. And I, I know in my own life, I, I, when I walk alone, I walk stupidly. What I need is other men speaking to me, guiding me. And I, I don't. I think every man just needs to understand you cannot achieve noble or great manhood alone. You cannot achieve righteous manhood alone. 
I mean, from a Christian perspective, uh, you know, you can't, you can't perfect what you're meant to be in the Christian life alone. That's why we have the diversity of gifts. That's why we have apostles and prophets and teachers, or on, on, at another level, we've got people with administrative gifts or people with serving gifts, all the different gifts mentioned in the New Testament. I mean, Paul says it very clearly. We don't form a whole until we come together with all of our different gifts and form one body. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to noble manhood. So I can read books, watch videos, try to strain to do it. But I'm going to tell you, in my life, I didn't really come into any kind of fullness as a man until I had other men speaking to me boldly about what needed to happen in my life. And at the same time, their lives were open to me. And so you're really not going to achieve noble manhood unless you are walking with other men who have that same goal who will speak to you, who aren't afraid of you, and who are open to your input into their lives. Right, right. Well said, well said. Um, now, Stephen, I want to read a, a passage from your book that um, I think kind of encompasses what, in a perfect world, what it would look like if we were um, walking authentically with Christ and um, fulfilling that promise of manhood. And because I'm going to transition into something, but I, I just had to, to share this with the, with the listeners. This is what you wrote in your book. You said that if we lived in an ideal world, Every man would learn the traits of being an authentic man as part of a dynamic body of righteous men. He would have models um, in these older men. He would have a tribe. He would be initiated, honored, challenged, trained, corrected, and commissioned by these men. In fact, in an ideal world, you say that a man would barely be able to identify what had made him a great man, a genuine man. It would all be natural and woven into his life. It would just be. Now, the reason why I wanted to share that, because most of us have never experienced that ideal. Um, so what would you say to the man out there who says, Stephen, but I, I get this and these are great ideals, but I've never had a Paul figure in my life, an older man to show me the way. I've never had my dad wasn't connected to me. And so I'm lacking a lot of the tools. I'm not equipped. What would you say to the man? What should would you advise him to do if he's never been taught? how to be a man. Well, let me say, first of all, one of the things that impresses me the most is how at whatever age, when a man decides he's going to be a good and a noble man and starts to seek the help of God and other men, it's astonishing how quickly things are made up, how much ground he can make up and recover in his life. So I don't want any man of any age who's listening to this interview to think that, well, I didn't have a certain kind of father and I'm at a certain age or these are my, these are my failures, uh, you know, and, and think that he can't become a noble man. It's a st- I've watched men in their 60s and 70s suddenly become astonishing, even though they had decades of you know, stupidity, uh, you know, marking up their lives. So the first thing the man has got to do um, is you, I, you already know from the four maxims, you cannot do this without God's help. Right. You have got to begin to go to God. You've got to begin to pray. You've got to begin to repent of the things you've done badly and begin to gain a biblical vision for noble manhood, which means you're going to have to be involved in a church where they talk to men straight, where there's a good you know, men's ministry. Um, you know, Don't settle for anything less. It's not about Sunday morning only. It's about other relationships. Then pick up some of the better books. That's very, very important. You know, I don't think books are the only thing, but, but pick up some of the better books. My book is is a fine place to begin. Mm-hmm. Wild at Heart by John Eldon. Oh, yeah, definitely. Great book to start with. There are a whole bunch of others. A book called Healing the Masculine Soul and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's just so many great great books. Uh, and, and I'm sure your website's got a great list of them and you talk about them all the time, Joe. And then uh, you have got to find uh, older men and you got to find a band of brothers. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, that you just have to go after them. 
Um, you know, go find a good church. Ask who the great, the, the solid men are. Talk to those men. Ask if they have lunch with you once in a while. You know, when I began to realize what I needed in my life as a young man and that I had not even been taught how to shave <laughs> in my house, you know, I just simply went to men and said, teach me this thing. I got one guy to teach me how to shave and another guy to teach me how to change the oil. And another guy, I saw one guy who was really elegant and, and righteous when he was dating girls. And I said, tell me how that works. How do you relate to them? And just all of it. It's just, you know, I don't want to act like my parents never taught me anything. Mm-hmm. Some of the arts of manhood. Um, they just weren't in my life at all. So I got different men to teach me things. Now I need to tell you that, you know, uh, we, we have kind of an unusual image of mentoring. We get it from movies or history or something. You are not going to dress in a toga and some other guy dress in a toga, sit under a tree <laughs> eating apples with birds flying around and him right. teach you everything you need to know. Right. We are not waiting for Superman. Superman's not going to come. You're going to have to get this stuff from one guy here and another guy there and a book there and bring it together. And if you're fortunate, you'll have a good pastor, some good older men, uh, and some good fellow, fellow band of brothers to walk with. And these things will get rebuilt in your life. But don't be frustrated if you don't, you know, not sitting around being taught everything you need to know with, you know, violin music playing in the background. That's not how it works for most of us. We just go after it. We begin to understand from programs like this what it is we need. And we just, we just get it wherever we can. And God uses all of it to rebuild in our lives. And Stephen, you mentioned you approach some of these men because I don't know how to do this. Could you help me? Could you teach me? And we know that takes a level of humility um, to be able to do that. And men seem, we seem to be a little bit more afraid of approaching men. And the reception you received from these men were very open. Oh yeah, we'll show you. Why do you think we're so afraid to approach um, another man, if an older man, and ask for help? Why are we so stuck on that? Well, two things. First of all, it's just pride. We have a hard time admitting what we don't know. You know, we've spent our whole life trying to impress people to what we do know and what we can do. And I got to tell you, when you get desperate enough, you just realize yeah. the, the price of, that you're paying is you don't know the right things. The second thing is we fear rejection. I've gone to men and I've said, look, could you just have lunch with me and tell me how you do that one thing? And I've had them say, I just do not have time. I'm sorry. And even though they were good at something and they could have taught me, you know, not all of them have a vision for mentoring um, that matches my vision for, you know, getting getting fathers to speak into my life. But But I certainly had enough men say yes. And I'm talking about you just wouldn't believe the fundamental things. One guy just was so gracious with people and the way he made introductions and the way he handled meeting new people. And I said, could you teach me about that? And he taught me more in 10 minutes over a hamburger uh, than I had learned my whole life. And so you've got to be willing to risk. You've got to care enough about being the man you can be and called to be that you're willing to risk the rejection and also suffer whatever pain you suffer by by indicating someone, showing somebody you don't know what you need to know. Right. But most of us don't know what we need to know. And only the fool sits there quietly acting like he knows it. Uh, the wise man goes after it wherever he can find it. And I'm telling you, that's, that is the key, hunger after knowledge. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot, Stephen. You mentioned the man that you... Um, were impressed by and you wanted to know how he had those type of um, exceptional communication skills. If you could give a man a tip to break the ice of the best way to approach someone, what kind of tip or strategy, what would you tell them to say that can kind of make it a little bit easier to approach that man and not fear rejection so much? Well, first of all, just some of those fundamental skills, walk up, shake hands, square off your shoulders towards him, look him in the eye, let him know that you're present and that you're not just, you know, kind of you know, kind of sliding up to him and nervous and so on. And then say, I've noticed this thing about your life 
Uh, I've not had a chance to learn that. I'd like to master that myself. Could you just spend a little time with me, even maybe just sitting aside here after this service or, or maybe over a hamburger? You know, if you meet the guy in business, just ask him if he'll have lunch and say, I just want you to teach me this one thing. If you don't mind, I'm trying to learn. I, uh, you don't have to go into your whole history, but you know, I, I haven't been taught some of these things, and I just so admire what you do. Now, I've, I've asked people that about their, their investing. I've asked people about that kind of thing with their, uh, their car care. I've asked about how dressing. I noticed a guy tied a knot a certain way on a tie, and I said, okay, okay, teach me that right now. Come on, teach me. We just had a hilarious time one day, you know, taking off our ties and putting them back on. And it can become a lot of fun, but, but, but the main thing is to go up, be open, Look people in the eye. Tell them honestly what the deal is. Look, I don't know what I need to know. I'm not going to park in your backyard for the next 10 years. Could you spend 15 minutes with me? Right. And that has that has made a huge difference. Good, good, good stuff. Now, on another interview, Stephen, I heard you mention about taking your son on a sailing trip when he was 13 years old. And I think you had made him a, a like a captain or something. You had commissioned him as a Yes. But the point being that w- you said that we need to create rituals to usher our sons into manhood. Explain to us what you mean by that and why it's so important and what kind of rituals can we create for our sons um, as fathers? Yeah, I think we need to take a page out of the, uh, the Boy Scouts, the military, uh, sports even, and realize that we have got to, to mark and commemorate and even impart at certain junctures in a man's life. So I fully believe, and thank God I knew this by the time my son turned 13. When he turned 13, I had what you might call a Christian bar mitzvah. You know, our Jewish friends will, uh, you know, had to take a boy when he's 13. He's got to have mastered his Hebrew and he reads to the whole congregation and they, they make him a quote unquote son of the covenant. And he has actual responsibilities in the community. Well, so I did a Christian version of that. I had men speak into his life. I had, I gave him a sword. And then I took him on a trip to, down to the Abacos near the Bahamas. And we sailed for 10 days. We took two guys who actually knew how to sail because I didn't. And we made him the captain of the dinghy. Here he was at 13, that little boat they have tied on the back of a sailboat in mm-hmm. case they need to get to shore. He was the captain of the dinghy. Now, he flipped it open and he over and he flooded the engine and all. But then he got really good at it. And it was a real turning point in his life. I didn't, I didn't correct him unless I absolutely had to. I let him just be free. He ran on that boat naked. He dove. He, he carried on. That was the first time I let him drink alcohol in my presence. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Not that that's manhood, you know, I'm not saying yeah. that, but just whatever, you know, he, he was, I even, one, one of the guy was a cigar smoker and I even let him have one puff on a cigar. And I said, son, this is, not, you know, not healthy, but I don't want you, I don't want you living your whole life thinking this is some mystery that you can't be part of. Take, have a, have a puff. And I'll tell you, he puffed and almost hacked up his entire lunch and, uh, and they never had another one again. So yeah, I'm I, assuming you didn't share this with Beverly. <laughs> uh, I didn't tell her advance, that's for sure. But, um, all of that to say, you know, just, just a good bar mitzvah. And then these guys, we'd sit around at night under the stars out there on the ocean and we would, you know, talk, talk to Jonathan. And I said, guys, tell Jonathan your best life lesson. Guys, tell Jonathan what you see in his life. You know, because they all knew that they were there for that reason. I had paid for the whole thing. And uh, it was it was really transforming for him. It really was wonderful. And I so I and I mean by the way, my son is now 30, and I think he's about to change jobs and maybe move to another town. Well, when that happens, I'm gonna have another little celebration for him. Right. Because right. I want to affirm him at every juncture in his life. And I, I think that these these rituals, they don't have to be highly developed and you know, we don't have to wear special clothes and so on, but we need to mark the transitions of a man's life. When he gets married, when he has children, when he takes a job, when he gets promotion to a new level of authority, all of that, I think there's a place to celebrate, to pray, to affirm him, 
and to give wisdom and, and speak speak truth into his life. And I, I, I mean, I need that right now. I'm 57. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think all of us need that at the major junctures of our lives. Now, Steve, based on your experience and talking to other men, what other, because I know basically what you're saying is that it doesn't really matter the ritual as long as you have one and you, you use this time as a way to commemorate that certain stage in their life. But just from your experience, what other rituals have you heard that men are doing to kind of celebrate their sons and affirming them as, as men? This is one of the things I'm most excited about that I see happening with men all over the country. I know a group of men who decided to have their sons, um, when they all turned 13 together, because they were all buddies, uh, they had to climb a mountain on their own. Now, I'm talking about a hiking mountain, not not you know technical climbing right. with ropes and going up the face of a, of a sheer cliff. And they the kids were not really alone. The dads were actually out in the woods out of view. So the dads were making sure they were safe, but these kids had to climb up the this this hill, this mountain, alone. And then two or three hours of the climb were in the dark. You can imagine how 13-year-olds get freaked out. But when they got to the top, some of the dads were there with a bonfire and a big meal. And they gave them all knives, you know, real nice knives. And they affirmed them and sang songs over them and did little rituals. That, that's awesome. Um, I know um, other, other guys who have had their kids memorize scripture and uh, serve the poor and uh, work in the church and, uh, you know, receive correction from older men for a season in a very prescribed way. And then they took them on a big foreign trip, you know, something cool. Um, there's, there's always some kind of a hardship you have to endure uh, to prove yourself. And then there's sort of the reward and the blessing and the affirmation and then some symbol of that moment that can sit on the guy's wall for the rest of his life. Um, there's a state senator in California uh, who's got the knife his father gave him during one of these rituals on his wall. And uh, I think that kind of thing is fantastic. I, you know, if we do this thing right, our sons will have the things we've given them in various rituals uh, on their walls, speaking to them for the rest of their lives while they accomplish the things they're meant to accomplish. And I, I think these, these things are important, and not just when a kid turns 13, when he graduates high school, when he gets married, when he first has kids. Sometimes the man kind of gets ignored in these processes, you know, and it's understandable. You know, your wife has a, has a baby and, and uh, you know, the, the, the focus is on the wife and the baby, but the man is about to have his whole life change. He needs to have some men come up to him and say, now, here's what it means to be a father and to love your wife through this process. And I just think these are natural things that happened more naturally earlier in history, but now we've lost the art of them and we need to reclaim it. And Stephen, I'm glad you shared that because you actually answered the question I was going to ask you next about what about those men out there whose sons, now if they've lost the opportunity because they're no longer 13 or younger, and but now they're older, maybe uh, past the age of 16, maybe past the age of 20, but you just answered the question. Basically looking at, there's still markers in their life, you know, getting married, buying their first house, you know, yeah. moving to a different city. I don't know, but you're saying just be aware, I guess, of transitions in their lives and be there to commemorate those transitions. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the simple way to say it is your son might be the middle linebacker for the, you know, for the, for a pro team and just, just a real manly looking guy, but that boy is still in there mm-hmm. and he still needs affirmation and he still needs guidance and he still needs wisdom and he still needs a father's arm around him. And even if you aren't the biological father, if you're just the mentor father figure, still uh, all of us have got our younger selves inside of us still needing the affirmation guidance. And, and I would say even the, the fatherly touch and the, the good, wholesome, clean, you know, athletic way um, that affirms and uh, sets a man's soul straight. Mm-hmm. Now, before we get into the, the man up questions, I want to take you back to and I usually pick the age of 21. OK, this was for your road to Damascus experience when you had the party and celebration of uh, being Abu John. Uh, I want to take you back to 21. If you can go back now, 
based on what you know now, you can go back to that 21-year-old. What would you tell him to do first, Stephen? If I was talking to 21-year-old Stephen Mansfield, I would tell him that his the lack of affirmation, the lack of guidance and counsel that he's received in his home has made him too self-centered. So he's too self-conscious. He's too self-centered. He's too preoccupied with what people are thinking about him in any given situation he's in. It's actually making him insecure. It's it's damaging his performance. It's uh, removing peace from his life. So if I could if I could pull one thing out of his soul or identify one thing for him, it would be to be aware that the way he was raised made him insecure and overly self-conscious. And as a result, it's just killing his ability to be the best man he can be. Wow. What you just shared is so profound. It goes back to what we're saying. Oh, I don't need a dad. That is the wound. That's where the father wound comes from. Yes, exactly. Wow. Wow. Uh, We've asked that question a lot. And that's the first time I've heard anybody bring that up. And that's you're so on point with that. Now, if you can go back to him now and ask him this question, what would you tell him to do better? If you could give him some advice, what would you tell Stephen to do better at the age of 21? Um, To do better. I I, I think that the Stephen Mansfield at the age of 21, despite the fact he'd accomplished a few things, was actually very lazy. Had not, okay. <laughs> not really worked, learned how to work smart and work hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I accomplished some things just by bowling my way through it, but I hadn't, I hadn't really learned. I, I, I was lazy. I avoided the things that were uncomfortable to me. I went after the things that were comfortable to me. Uh, I made too much of the few successes that I had, and I hadn't really learned how to work and how to, how to embrace the hard things. Uh, like I should have. And I would learn that eventually, but it, but it would take too long and there'd be some losses along the way. So uh, that's what I, that's probably the thing I would tell him to do better. Well, I love asking these questions because it shows you that it doesn't matter where you start, what counts is where you decide to finish. And so most people would never, never have guessed that about you at the age 21. <laughs> so I'm glad that you shared that. Now, here's the last one. Now, 21-year-old Stephen wasn't all bad. So what would you go back and tell him to do more of that he was starting to do that was doing doing good stuff? What would you tell him to do more of? 21-year-old Stephen Mansfield was uh, loved to laugh, uh, loved music, uh, was rowdy. You know, he. I would just, I would just throw myself into anything. You know, I remember. I, I'm not much of a runner. I'm about. No, oh, I don't know. I've always been big, more a lineman than a runner. But one guy said, "Listen, I'm going to get you to run a marathon." I said, "Okay, let's go." And for a year, I trained to run the Tulsa Run, the big old Tulsa Run. Mm-hmm. And finally, I ran it. I just look back now and I go, "What in the world?" But, but that's something we as men tend to lose over time. We tend to get a little bit tame. We tend to get a little domesticated. It's not the fault of women. It's the fault of the lives we choose to lead in our cubicles in front of our televisions. And so the thing I'd like to have even more of the 21-year-old Stephen Mansfield in my soul now uh, you know, from him, um, is that rowdy, let's go, let's jump off the roof, let's run the <laughs> marathon, let's, you know, let's throw ourselves into it, Yahoo!, um, that, that maybe a little bit of wildness. I think, I think men tend to learn a little bit of controlled wild, lose a little bit of controlled wildness as they go forward. And, you know, the life I live is a lot about, you know, airplanes, hotel rooms and offices mm-hmm. and stages and, uh, you know, suits and, you know, television, all that stuff. And, uh, I could use a little bit more of that in my life now. So he, he had a better handle on that then than I do now. That's for sure. Oh, I love it. I love it. Now, Stephen, it's time for the man up questions. Now, these are five quick questions, starting with the letters M A N U P and they require just your, um, fear honesty and you can shoot from the hip and let it rip. So are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. And we'll get started with those questions right after this short break. If you're like most men in our audience, you're committed to becoming the man, husband, father, and leader God called and created you to be. But the truth of the matter is you struggle with either finding the time or knowing where to start. That's exactly why I created the Real Men Spiritual Leader Blueprint. 
to give you a step-by-step, easy-to-follow guide to spiritually leading your family, even if you're a new believer. Now, you can't buy the Real Men Spiritual Leader Blueprint, but you can get it for free by signing up for our free e-newsletter. By signing up, you will be notified anytime fresh content is added to my site, so you don't always have to visit my blog to stay up-to-date on the latest information. Now, to get your free copy of the Real Men Spiritual Leader Blueprint, just visit realmenconnect.com and simply enter your name and email address on the form on the page. So if you're tired of trying to figure it all out and fit it all in as the spiritual leader, provider, and protector of your family, don't miss your chance to discover how to be the man God called and created you to be. Sign up today at realmenconnect.com. We're back with Stephen Mansfield. And Stephen, it's time for the Man Up Questions. I'm going to give you the first letter. It starts with M, and the M stands for mistake, okay? What mistake did you learn the most from as a man? Um, biggest mistake as a man would have been uh, not walking as closely with my son as I should have, not not knowing his soul as much as I should have. I uh, My son is not wired like I am. He's a little bit different from me. We're, we're good friends now, but we had some rough years, and, and that probably was a result of me not taking the time to really understand him and just being incredibly impatient with him. Right, right. What age, if you don't mind me asking, was doing that season in his life, you thought? Oh, it was those early teen years where every young man loses his mind. And <laughs> right. goes, where Are you a Martian? Where did you come from? <laughs> but uh, that, I, I didn't handle that all that well. Okay. Now, the A represents attitude. If you could change one attitude in men, because you work with a lot of them, what would it be? It would be the attitude that I've got to walk it alone, the lone ranger, the man doing it by himself. I, I, I got to tell you, the good news is that manhood can't be done alone. You got to have men around you, and it'll go fast and go well when you do that. The bad news is you walk alone, you're walking like a fool, and you're going to make a big mess of it. Okay. And Stephen, I couldn't wait to ask you the next question, which in stands for next, because you are involved in so many things, um, conferences, um, writing books, doing all this, traveling all over the, the country, just doing a lot of, doing a lot of ser- social um, service stuff. And, but, so I want you to pick one. Okay. And I said, and sure. the question is, in stands for next, what would be the next big thing you would attempt to do for God if you couldn't fail? If I couldn't fail, I would uh, build a big global network of uh, men and men's events and men's resources to change manhood in our generation. If I knew for sure God had called me to it and I couldn't fail, the thing I'd like to leave behind is a massive global uh, movement of righteous manhood. Wow, that seems like that's my vision. <laughs> but, uh, you can't take my vision. Don't be, don't be stealing my vision. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, Stephen, the U stands for uh, understand. Now, when you were younger, what was the one thing you didn't understand about being a man, but you know better now? Well, when I was young, the thing I didn't understand about being a man was that it is, um, it was, it's different from womanhood. I mean, that's, that's the main thing. The main thing I didn't understand about being a man was that it was something distinct, that it was something unique, that it was something that, uh, you know, uh, was a, a cause and a purpose all its own. And so I never even thought about manhood as anything I should be practicing. I just thought I was a, a, a man for biological reasons, like a woman was a woman for biological reasons. And of course, that's just absurd. Right, right, right. And here's the last question. The last letter is P, stands for P, and the P stands for problem. As a mighty man of God, what one problem in your life do you still struggle with, even as a man today? I, I probably struggle with um, 
not having enough meaningful connections to men. Now, I've got, don't misunderstand, I've got a lot of men in my life. But uh, the problem is that the downside of your success is sometimes that it gets in the way of the things you want to live out as values. And so I travel a lot. I hide in an office and write a lot. I do, I do shows like this for an hour in a room by myself. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so the problem is that I don't have the me- all the meaningful connections with other men that I really do need to have. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And you did a great job on that, Stephen. Thanks for um, for being um, so transparent and honest with us about that. And before we close, just I just want to leave you with one thing that you would want to share and leave with our listeners about manhood. In other words, what would you want their, their takeaway to be from our conversation today? Well, I've said it so many times, but, I, but it's the biggest thing. You must build a band of brothers in your life. You must have men around you speaking into your life. You do life with them. You have the rowdy fun. Um, it to me is that's that's probably the one. It's not a secret. I wouldn't call it a secret, but it's the one thing I wish I could admit in every man's soul. You cannot walk alone and become the best you can be. That's all there is to it. You can't do it in football. You can't do it in tennis. You can't do it in your work life. Uh, you can't do it building your house. You got to have people around you, and the same is true when it comes to achieving noble manhood. I totally agree with you on that, Stephen. And guys, uh, we've come to the end of our show, but don't you worry, we'll be back to do it all over again next week with a new guest, with new insights and new lessons. So make sure you don't miss it. But I'd like to thank my guest today, Stephen Mansfield, my hero, for joining us today and for being so gracious with his time. Thank you, Stephen. Good to be with you, Joe. Thanks a lot, buddy. And Stephen, before you go quickly for our listeners, they want to find out more about you, your book, anything that you're working on, because you're working on a lot of different things. How could they get in contact with you and how could they find out more? stephenmansfield.tv is my website, stephenmansfield.tv, and they can follow me on Twitter at at MansfieldWrites, at MansfieldWrites. Joe, thanks so much, buddy. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And guys, listen up. To all of you out there, please do us a favor. This is so important. Take about 30 seconds to go over to iTunes and rate the program. It's the best way to help us get this program in the hands, ears, and hearts of men just like you. And please don't keep us a secret. Share us with your friends. Until next time, I'm Joe Martin, your man builder with realmenconnect.com. Reminding you that we are males by birth, but we are men by choice. So each and every day, choose to be the man God called and created you to be. Because a male is a terrible thing to waste. So until next time, stay strong, stay blessed, and as always, stay in his grip. Thank you for listening to the Real Men Connect podcast with Dr. Joe Martin. Real Men Connect isn't just a podcast. It's a mission, ministry, and movement to help good men become the great men God called and created us to be and the best is yet to come. So if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave us a review in iTunes. It really helps us to build the podcast and to reach, teach, and impact more men, all for the glory of God. And make sure you check out realmenconnect.com to get our free tools and resources to help you go from good man to great man God's way. Again, that's realmenconnect.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Real Men Connect is a listener-supported podcast, and we're now the number one radio podcast on iTunes for Christian men. If this podcast has blessed you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to bless and transform the lives of even more husbands, fathers, sons, and leaders, please prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. Just go to realmenconnect.com and click on the donate button. And may God bless your faithful giving.